The Voice America Business Channel is brought to you by Intercall, the worldwide conferencing leader. Check out easy and reliable conferencing solutions at www.intercall.com forward slash radio. Welcome to In Discussion in this three-part series with Dunyan Brinkley, the New York Times best-selling author of Saved by the Light and At Peace in the Light. His latest literary classic, co-authored with his wife, Catherine Brinkley, is entitled The Secrets of the Light, Lessons from Heaven. And his first bestseller, Saved by the Light, spent 26 weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list and was made into a television motion picture by the Fox Network and has been seen by tens of millions of people in over 30 countries since 1995. And to this day, it remains the highest-rated made-for-television movie in Fox's history. After being struck in the side of the head by a bolt of lightning in 1975, at the age of 25, he found himself travelling down a tunnel and into a brilliant light. There, he witnessed a panoramic review of his entire life on Earth. And afterwards, he was taken to a luminous crystal city. And there, within a hall of knowledge... Thirteen beings of light infused Danyan's consciousness with visions of the world to come and charged him with his spiritual mission of establishing healing centers on the earth. Then, against his will, twenty-eight minutes later, he was returned to his lifeless body. Since that faithful evening in 1975, he's been on an incomparable spiritual odyssey, and today... He's revered as one of the greatest orators of our time, offering a message of great hope and courage to audiences worldwide. He later became a hospice and nursing home volunteer in 1978. And in the past 30 years of volunteer service, he's been at the bedside of over 350 people at their moment of death, and with more than 1,800 people during their final days accruing more than 26,000 hours of service at the bedside. In 1997, Danyan co-founded the Twilight Brigade, and today is one of our nation's largest non-profit organizations, dedicated to the training of volunteers who serve as transition technicians at the bedside of our country's priceless and beloved American war veterans. His wife, Catherine, works at his side as president of the organization. And since its inception, the Twilight Brigade has recruited nearly 6,000 volunteers who have accrued more than 250,000 reported hours at the bedside. With more than 76 million baby boomers now confronting the mortality of family members and friends, many of whom are veterans, this program is providing a much-needed link to assure quality in end-of-life care. Having honorably served in the Marine Corps, Brinkley's profound commitment to death with dignity has inspired him to successfully devote his life to the creation of a reality where no veteran need die alone. Being recognized as a true American hero on behalf of the veterans, in 2007 Danyan was awarded the President's Lifetime Achievement Award for Outstanding Volunteer Service. Daniel Brinkley joins me on In Discussion. Welcome to In Discussion today, and my special guest joining me, Daniel Brinkley. Daniel, welcome to you. 
Hi, David. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. Danyan, we have two or three programs together, and as ever, I'd like to go back to childhood and draw a line in the sand and work forwards, if we may. Could we go back to your childhood and just for the audience talk about that period where you grew up in the rural South Carolina area? How do you remember those days? Well, I remember them as wonderful. I don't think anybody else who was around me at that time remembers them as wonderful. But for me, it was wonderful growing up in the South. I mean, it's a wonderful place. I loved it. But, you know, David, I grew up as a bully. I grew up as a tough guy, a guy that thought that the way you handled any situation was to knock the other person out. No one seems to understand how I was like that from such a young kid. From the, I can remember the fourth and fifth and sixth grades, but it was just the way that I think I got attention, and it was the way that you handled your problems and you dealt with those issues. I had a very short fuse. And I think that religion played a part in that because I was so rebellious about uh, fundamentalism, the way you grew up in fundamentalism and that everybody was going to hell. You know, in South Carolina, everybody goes to hell. And so I think that that played a part of my early childhood and then my young adulthood. And I had such a rebellious nature against it. And I played sports because I got attention, you know, and it was the way that you sought attention. And then I was a street fighter, and I was a pretty good street fighter. I think that gave attention. And then after sports, I went to college a year or so, and then I entered the Marine Corps, and I discovered a whole new world about getting attention. You could destroy things, and people liked you, and the better you destroyed it, the better you were liked. What about looking back at childhood? Do you think that there was a catalyst or a conditioning? You've mentioned religion. What else could there have been then that could have taken you down that road rather than being of a different nature? Well, I mean, I grew up in the most perfect family, I didn't know we were dysfunctional until I was like in my 50s, but we were a perfect family. I grew up in a small, uh, I had a brother, a sister, and a mom, and a dad, and we worked together from the time I was four years old. I worked, we owned grocery stores. I had a great mom and a fabulous father. My father was always cool. My mom was a tad neurotic, but in a beautiful way. Had a wonderful brother and sister. I've always, David, tried to figure out what made me so mean. You know, it's all, you always try to look at sociopathic tendencies, but none of my childhood relates in any type of way to be a sociopath, you know, because you come from bad childhoods or disjointed childhoods. And I've looked back at that, but I had the most perfect, the most perfect childhood anybody could have. I was just a person that sought attention through brutality. What about the children around you? Were they similar? Well, I believe that the growing up in the South in the 50s and the 60s, I mean, I, I love the South, but it's full of rednecks. It's full of people still fighting the Civil War, and 
I don't think there was so much wealth or prosperity that your personality was dictated by either how tough you were or what type of talent you may have had, you know. And mine was that I could was was a good good in sports and I was a great fighter. What about growing up in that rural landscape? What did you learn looking back? What did you learn about the countryside, the nature? Did you resonate with the nature at that stage? Well, I was not, um, you know, I, I, I was not in that kind of mindset, David. I, I didn't see anything outside of myself. But you have to remember, the place that I grew up is the polo capital of the world. It's uh, in the little town that I lived in that was a population of probably 6,000 people. It had homes that were built with 80 to 100 rooms. And the streets were dirt roads because the horse was king. And it's the Paget Rolex World Cup. It's played there, and it's the oldest continuous played-on polo field in the world. So you had what was called the colony people. And they would come in in late November, and they would stay with till March. And it was all about horses because of the sand. And so there was a period in growing up that was a maybe a point of reference that I would use to draw from that I didn't like where I was or I maybe didn't like the condition I found myself because you would go from being normal people to you would see such wealth. How is that social landscape now today? It's the number one place where I grew up is the number one place to retire 55 and older in the United States. And it is considered probably of probably 15 countries uh, train their equestrian teams for the Olympics. And it has the winningest horse stables in the world. It, and if you don't own polo ponies from Aiken, South Carolina, you don't really own a polo pony. I mean, it grew up to be quite a sophisticated place. When I graduated from high school, the high school I graduated from was Aiken High School, was the number 12th ranked high school academically in the nation. Because what happened was they built a, thing, a place called the Savannah River site, the nuclear facility that built atomic weapons. And so in my early childhood, I go back and think of the type of sophistication that was there because all of the PhDs and the people from France and Germany and uh, all over the world who migrated into this little small town because by the time I was in the 12th grade, it was filled with academia, beta scholars and things like that. But those were not things that were interesting to me. Sports was interested because that was my way out of that little town. And when I didn't even, I went to see if I graduated from high school and I left that probably within three days I left. You joined the Marines. How did that come about? Was that with the support of your parents or was that through your own acknowledgement, as it were, of continuing this uh, dilemma that you had in, in so much that you recognized now that you grew up as a bully? 
Was that a, another segue? Was that a, a way of continuing that? I didn't think that I was growing up as a bully. <laughs> you know, I didn't think like that. I, 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 I fit in pretty well with a lot of other bullies. You know, the jocks, that mindset. But the Marine Corps was, I saw it as an opportunity. And since I was probably in the draft, we had the draft in the States at that time. And I thought I was probably next to be drafted. Maybe within that next six months I would be drafted. And so what I decided is I wanted to be a part of the best. When you look at that period, Daniel, as a social historian, I look at the 50s, 60s, and 70s in particular, and where we're today in main part could be as a result of what occurred in 1945. But how do you look at the 60s? I look at the 60s as the civil rights movements, the 60s paradigm, the organizations that came out of it, the will to try and affect huge change. And, of course, the 50s to me were a decade of uh, the consumerism. And then by the time we reached the 70s, it was when we went into what I call a predatory greed. Do you see those decades in that way? Exactly. I mean, the 50s were uh, coming out of a great war. And the opportunity, because America had the Bretton Woods Agreement and the Dunbarton Agreement, Dumbarton Oaks Agreement, which standardized the dollar as a world currency and created it as the world currency. And it gave America was an industrial giant because it had built itself so powerfully as a war machine. It is today a war machine. And it built itself, and so many guys had come home with an identity that they had served in the war. My father was a disabled World War II veteran who managed very well after that. But there was a sense of consciousness in the late 40s and 50s about that you could achieve anything and that we had defeated world powers with our with the coalition. And then came the 60s, which were the, the children of baby boomers, who we are now at this age. I'm a baby boomer. Then came the baby boomer to give your children what you never had, and most of our families and our parents came out of the end of the Depression, and their parents lived through the Depression, and they grew up in the very end of the Depression. So there was a sense and a drive to give us what they never had or to create a world that would never go back to the place. Then the 60s came. It was the age to seek freedom. It was a place where the old paradigms didn't hold, and we were in the midst of the Vietnam War, and so many people saw it as wrong. You know, I never thought in those terms in the 60s. I mean, I, I, I looked at the 60s. Segregation and civil rights was, even where in my family, was never an issue. I never had a racist tendency in me because my father's two best friends were these two black guys that he had known since he was a kid. And I can remember how excited, David, he would be when they would come in one of the stores that we had. He would stop what he was doing, and they would talk. And you could see the delight my father had in having conversations with these two gentlemen. And so... 
there you could never use the n word and there was no there was none of that in in our family and i remember when segregation came and i i was probably 15 or 16 14 or 15 and my father i asked him what should we do and he said you see these people every day what's the difference and there was no difference so i ended up defending a lot of young black students against people just like me <laughs> you know they were just like me but there never was that and then came the 70s the 70s when the baby boomers were finally getting their sea legs you know and in my world there was the the stemming the red tide the proxy wars the concept that you would not engage the chinese or you would not engage the Russians straightforward uh, because we'd found out in in the Korean conflict that the Chinese could send waves of millions of men. And we always psychologically believed to be the Russians to be equal to us or superior, or the American propaganda system gave us that concept. I now know that that was all nonsense, that they never were, and after traveling to Russia probably 10 times i now absolutely know it never was true how do you define your father what sort of man was he he was as good a man that ever lived he was a fabulous human being he was cool he had a sense about him that that he i never heard him raise his voice in my entire life i never heard him use a cuss word i never saw any of that he was a terrific dad, and I think I learned to love fights because every Friday night they had something called the Cavalcade of Sports, the Gillette Cavalcade of Sports, and my father would not miss it. He would get two beers, Pat's Blue Ribbon, and he would get two beers. My brother would sit on one arm, these big armed chairs. My brother would sit on one arm. I would sit on the other. We got to stay up late, and he would watch an hour's worth of boxing. To this day, David, I don't miss a good... I don't like UFC or mixed martial arts fighting because I grew up doing that. But I like pugilism. I like two equal boxers boxing. And I think it comes from those years with my father. But my father was as... You could not have a father greater than the one I had. He had a side about being supportive of whatever we wanted to do. He had a side about being supportive, and uh, and he was a fun to be around. If I was going to get a spanking for something, in those days you got a spanking, it would be on Friday night. If I did something on Saturday after I already had my spanking on Friday, he would be, I could just build up licks <laughs> till Friday night. And when he would come home, he'd come home taking his belt off and I would get my three or four or five licks that I had coming. But I never saw him in anger. I never saw any of that. I'm resonating with you thinking about my own father, who was very important to me. It's offering, in a way, though, a paradox, because you define yourself as a bit of a bully when you were young. David, not a bit of a bully. A real bully. 
a real bully. Is the paradox to me is the way that you recollect these times and look back upon them and recognized all of those wonderful human traits that your father had. It seems a paradox that you were opposed to his demeanor almost. And yet, did you realize that at the time? Did you realize, you know, recognize that very clearly? No. I was always rebelling against everything. I don't think I particularly liked humanity. I just didn't like it, and I and I didn't like the religious concept. I did not like the the nature of eternal damnation and that you went to hell and that you were obligated as a sinner and you were guilty of what some people were doing in the desert 6,000 years ago. I didn't understand the concept of, you know, where I came from. If you ask about dinosaurs they would tell you that it was a trick of the devil because the dinosaur uh, in the Neo-Paleolithic period, like Tyrannosaurus and Baronosaurus, 168 million years ago. And when you hear that, and all you hear is that the world was invented in seven days and it's only 6,000 years old, there is, a, there is a side of you, David, that begins to question if not outwardly, but inwardly, who you really are. I mean, my dad, when the, when the church doors opened, we went. And when, you know, you, this is what you did, and you studied your Sunday school lesson, and you, you read the Bible, and, you know, I think the biggest hazard that happened in my life is when my father bought the encyclopedias. And when they came into the house, by the time I was 13 years old, I had read all of the encyclopedias. And I, 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 as I think back, David, I really believe that starting from A and going to Z and looking at the world as I lived in caught up in a religious paradigm and that it was such an arch position, uh, you know, an archetype, that by the time the 60s came, rebellion was was the, the natural course to take. I didn't drink or do drugs. I mean, I missed all that period. Most of my friends were drinkers and druggers, but I just didn't understand the fact that if you were drinking, you said the same thing over and over again and really never made any sense. And if you were doing drugs, you couldn't remember the last sentence you just said. So none of that ever made any sense to me. Now, in the 80s, I tried drugs and alcohol for a little short period of time, which makes me understand why I never thought much of that in the in the 60s. <laughs> you know, I had to try to see if there was a world that you could get higher in than the world I had already been through in the near-death experience. But I didn't relate my father to the general context, or my mother, to the general context of the world that I was viewing. I think that my rebellion against what I had learned, either the encyclopedias were true or the way I was religiously taught was true. I, at times, will go off at a tangent, but I will always return back to the middle of the road, Daniel. Just a thought here before we move on to the Marines. When I've 
first began this programming, I wrote a statement that we're the generation of all generations. Would you concur with me that we are now, and I can chart back as far as the Templars or even further back, and I can look at the uh, Inquisition and the Freemasonry and everything else, but do you think that we're a generation now that is beginning to inherit in some sort of cellular way all of that grief and human frailties and the chaos that's been created through that fear by religious organization that we now approaching next year however you see that is having to sort out in our minds is having to assess where we go from here absolutely this is the most dynamic period of time and I believe in the last 25,920 years, because we have to look at who we truly are as spiritual beings. This is our quest. I mean, when you look to see where this world is and you look at it honestly, we are not alone. There is a life after death. There is a process. We have created a world and allowed the world that's literally literally come to the point of collapse. And most people don't realize that it has collapsed, but the world that I was born in and the country I grew up in does not exist anymore. And the new world is being born. And I agree with you 100%, David. We are facing the repercussions and repercussions of that collective non-consciousness, the process of living in an illusion based on a religious paradigm of our spirituality. And looking at all of those things and the flaws of, I don't know exactly what you mean by the Templars, but I understand the Inquisition and the Crusades and the Masons. The Masons are a non-Christian perspective and rather in some paradigms considered occultist, but they generated a structure that created the buildings that we have. I mean, I don't quite understand how those all those paradigms fit together in a mindset, but I do agree 100% that the last 6,000 years, and preferably the last 1,000 years of humanity, we are reckoning with. The rise of the church and the kings and rule by divine right, the rise of uh, the Orthodox and the Catholic Church, the rise of Islam, the rise of this, the rise of democracy and representative republics, and the 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 uh, exploiting and literally destruction of a of a world, not just a nation. We are the I I I me me me, and. What I, 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 me, 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 and the greed of the 80s and the 90s has brought the collapse of a world culture. I'm going to continue that conversation, Daniel, either later in this program or in the next. But if we may, so I just stay on the narrative here, let's just continue uh, through the time that you entered the Marines. You're entering the Marines, you are a proud American, you uh, understand that honor that comes with it, you are clearly receiving the support of those loved ones around you. What is the general memories that you have from that time? Well, 
uh, in the early parts of the Marine Corps, I learned that I learned to like no. <laughs> you know, when someone says no, it became something I liked and a discipline that I had never had, uh, a type of discipline and a a sense of survival and a instinctual nature of value. And to be a United States Marine, although because of that period of time and what we have done as a nation, I'm not proud now, but I was always proud that I served in the United States Marine Corps. And I always proud that I put America first. In some of the situations, David, I am not proud of what we as America did. I'm not really as proud of Vietnam. I never did understand what that was. And what we did in Central and South America and how covert activity operated all the way through and what we now is covert in Afghanistan and Iraq. I see it clearly because I was a part of that system. And in small and lesser ways, I stayed a part of that system for a long time, mostly as uh, mostly as uh, uh, doing analysis. But I was proud to serve in the Marine Corps. I was proud that that was a part of what you did. You served. My brother served. My father served. And I had I served. I mean, all, not all the things that I did and not all the things that were what we now rationalize as being the right thing. We now know those of us who did it knows that it wasn't the right thing. I was proud to be a part of the best. I was VIP'd a couple of times when I was uh, working in New Mexico down to the fort in El Paso to be on the airfield when Marines came back from Iraq. And it was a very sad time, Daniel. I watched kids come back with no reception and simply getting on buses and going home and hoping for the best. It is dreadful today how our men and women are serving for something that possibly they don't even realize what it is behind it that they're serving for. They realize this. Remember, listen, as a Marine, you follow orders. You don't pay any attention to that. And when you come home, you're still a Marine. The sadness is we do not support these wars because they are not wars. They are conflicts and they're business opportunities. It's the same thing you said earlier. It's about greed. It's about money. It's about oil. There are only three gods, oil, gold, and drugs. There are no other gods really in this world. And these Marines, no matter what, are proud they are served in Marines. But I, I have the Twilight Brigade. I have the largest end-of-life care volunteer program for dying veterans in the history of the United States of America. And I built it for, by starting with one person, me, and with a group of, of dedicated volunteers, I have 6,000 people who sit at the bedside of dying veterans, and I have more than 27,000 hours at the bedside. And in the course of a month, I see 2,600 brain, traumatic brain injury and PTSD veterans from the last three conflicts. 
this is all nonsense. If I was 22 to 25 years old, I would be gung-ho. I would be blowing up and killing everything that there was. I would have no problems doing it, no conscience about it. It would not matter to me, and I wouldn't have given a crap what anybody thought about it. And if they didn't like it, I would have probably shot them. My mindset till 25 years old, David, was what was I going to do with the body, not whether I was going to do anything about it. And this is how I always was. Now, I can tell you, today, if you ask anyone who serves, and I specialize in Marines, they'll, it's very easy. We went to Kandahar. America went to the mall. We are not locked in to these conflicts because the spiritual psyche of America knows it's only business. We know that Afghanistan, if we were going to attack who attacked us in 9-11, we would have attacked Saudi Arabia because it was Saudi Arabians who attacked us. If we were going to attack the Al-Qaeda, we would attack the United States Central Intelligence Agency because Al-Qaeda is, very simply, the database. It was created by the Central Intelligence Agency and the Defense Intelligence Agency in the mid-'70s to recruit radical Islamic youth who wanted a reason to fight because Islam and when you had infidels occupying Islamic land, you fight a jihad. So it was the Central Intelligence Agency and probably under the power of Zygbik Brzezinski that created this organization with the Pakistani Intelligence, IASI. And if you realize... You have al-Qaeda in Bosnia, you have al-Qaeda in Tunisia, now Algeria. Muammar Gaddafi said that there was a thousand al-Qaeda fighters in Libya today. And the United States recognizes that they are a thousand al-Qaeda fighters, and yet they're flying bombing support against the Gaddafi government, knowing that the same people that we're fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq are the same people we are supporting in the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi. This is just a repeat, is it not, of how the conflict in Vietnam was fought? Well, uh, no one ever knows what we were doing there. I never could figure it out. What were we doing? It was the Gulf of Tonkin resolution that when Johnson said it all started in 54 when we assassinated the when Kennedy... Uh, when, not Kennedy, but when we we installed a, a, a puppet president in Vietnam because we were worried about the Chinese. And since the Chinese were, that gave us a strategic position, and then came the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, which never happened. It never happened. And they always thought there was oil in the Gulf of Tonkin. And we went to war, and because America's pride and prestige in the 60s of being beaten by the Chinese, by the uh, Koreans supported by the Chinese, which never ended in resolution, it ended in an armistice. 
So we are still at war. Do these thoughts that you have now, were they resonating in your mind towards the end of your service in the Marines? Absolutely not. Whatever the commanding officer told me to do, and whatever as an intelligence operative they told me to do, it was very compartmentalized and it was need to know, and I did what I was supposed to do, and I did it very, very well. About 75% of the time it was something that was wrong, and it wasn't for the it wasn't for the reasons that I believed it was for. It was for business. It was for political gain. It was the might of the American forces defending democracy. Utter nonsense. What we're doing in Afghanistan is utter nonsense. What we're doing in Iraq is utter nonsense. This is a repeat of internationalism. Only now, would you agree that it is quite out of control? It's insane. It's worse than out of control. It's completely insane. We, as people of the world, and we who are baby boomers, who are responsible for bringing cognitive reality back, we have to shake it off. Can I ask you there, when I look back at the 60s, wrong or right, uh, when I put my social historian hat on, I define the 60s as incredibly well-intended people who knew very well how to burn the, the house down, but not how to rebuild it. But they're important, are they not? Because now we're in a time when the baby boomers, that generation, and those aspirations are now being put into practice today. Well, I'm not sure, David, how much in practice that they're being put, but I believe that the 60s represented a, a, a monumental movement in the break from the standard morality. It was like the end of the Victorian period. You know, the term flower power, which was the term given to the 60s, was invented in Germany in 1928 because the the kids in Germany after the after World War 1 and the Versailles Treaty they saw what the Versailles Treaty did and it set up what became Adolf Hitler because of the the re re repatriations and the 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 debt that the Europe's put on the Germans and so flower power came to be between when the German youth began to be just exactly what we were in the 60s. You talk about that loss of morality, but have you considered that perhaps that begun back in the 20s and, and just started to resonate in society by the time that we reached the 1960s? Well, I, I don't think it began in the 20s. The 20s was the era of after World War One, and there became another sense that America came and saved the world. This is the consciousness of the Americana. We came to save the world again, and they defeated, and we were apart, and we had integrated ourselves from an isolationist perspective into the European consciousness. We had begun to do commerce and building, and we began to set up what our stock market is and to create the income tax code, and began a general industrialized consciousness and flappers and the fact that we were rebelling against the ban on alcohol i was more referring actually to the strength of the 
Federal Reserve and how that came about in the middle 20s, which has had dire circumstances on our financial system, I believe. Oh, it's insane. It was, it was a carpet, ba- I mean, it was a robber baron's. It started, you know, when you as a historian would know, it all started with the Bank of England in the 1640s. I mean, any time that you can create a standard by which instead of having to carry all those gold coins, you can print a fiat currency. The Federal Reserve is the enemy of the world. The International Monetary Fund, it is the enemy of the world. The World Bank, the Bank of International Settlements, the Bank of International Settlements, which really runs everything, was created by the Nazis. You know, it was created by the the Nazi Party. And it is now uh, literally the controller of... Uh, it was first formed to be able to handle the, the, the looting of Europe and the treasures of Europe from the, from the occupied territories. All of these things, as you look at it economically, derivatives economically, we have created multiple ways to delude ourselves into believing we have some form of wealth when you don't. If you look at a Federal Reserve note, the very moment you hand a Federal Reserve note to a, a vendor to pay for something, you are declaring yourself that much money in debt. I think that today, and we must return back to 1975 shortly, but today it has reached a chaos in every area of life, and the national debt cannot be protected any further. It will never be paid. There's no... It's ridiculous to consider... Think of this. Think about it in seconds. A million dollars. A million dollars is 12 days in seconds. A trillion dollars in seconds is 31,340 years. So 31,340 years times 14. That's 400,000 years. It will never be paid. It will never happen. The debt will never be reduced. It will be, we are watching the coming of an economic period of a complete revamping since Bretton Wood and Dumbarton Oaks. That is probably a good thing, is it not? I have this phrase, Daniel, that I've been using more and more, wrong or right, and more people are resonating with me. That is, to gain everything, you have to lose everything, and in my case, that has occurred. It seems to me that that is the only way that we can move forward. Do you look at the premise, the prophecies of the Mayan calendar, of the... Indian communities of the Hopis. Do you think that this is what they are talking about in part? Absolutely. I, I study all of that, uh, David. Look, when you, um, like before 1975, I, I lived under the banter that what religion thought, I never believed any of it, but it was the controller. And somewhere in our deep-seated consciousness, there are those belief systems that you develop as a child. 
I've always tried to figure out in my life if I had never gone through what is now known as a near-death experience, would there had ever been a point in my life that I would come to know the divine nature of spirituality? The answer is no. But because in 1968 I went to see I was a track star, I wanted to see the Mexico Olympics. I wanted to see Jimmy Hines run the 100-yard dash. Or it was 100 meters. I think it was 100 yards then. And I went to Mexico. And between, between boxing and track and field was three days. And the people I went with said, let's go and see the pyramids. Well, I thought they were crazy. There's no pyramids in Mexico. I mean, you know, you don't ever think of that stuff in the 60s. So we drove about two hours outside of Mexico City, and we drove up into a field. And we got out, and I had, we took a blanket, and I went on and laid down. And uh, when I woke up in the morning in September of, like, 1968... I was on the first step of the Pyramid of the Sun at Teotihuacan. And I I have a photograph of myself waking up. A friend took it and me looking around. And I think somewhere deep inside of me that changed a part of me that I was not yet ready or able to consciously understand it. But to see Teotihuacan and to understand the Maya... I never went back. I spent the next four months riding buses to every, to Planque and Ushmal and and Tikal, and I went to see every pyramid or every Mayan structure, every Toltec structure in the Yucatan and in Guatemala, Honduras, Belize, all of those to see this. I could not believe it, and it literally wiped away my preconceived ideas of history. So I've, I've studied the Maya for 40 years, Toltecs and the principles, the Incans. I have studied them. The Incans are rel- relatively new in all of this, but the pre-Incan civil societies, the Muka, I mean, I have studied them. So I believe that prophecy exists like religion and Christianity and Judaism and the Old Testament there are prophecies, and this 2012 and the studies of Zechariah Sitchin and the planet Nuburu, it's on the this planet. It's on the NASA website, this so-called planet that has an elliptical orbit in our, into our world. You can see a photograph of it. They name it and talk about it. They call it Tai Chi. I mean, it's on the NASA website. So when you start to look at Zachariah Sitchin and you start to look at the Mayan and the Hopi and you start to look at these native nations who who somehow had an interdimensional consciousness or an extraterrestrial aspect to them, because all Mayans think they came from Venus, then yes, I agree. We are there at that point. If I take us back in the last part of this first program, Daniel, with this thought that if you look back to the pyramids 3,000 years ago or more, 
And of course, knowing that I grew up for the first 20 years of my life running around Stonehenge, I lived three quarters of a mile from it, so it's another reference point. We must realize at this stage that in those civilizations, they were probably more empowered, more scientifically progressive than we were. And then, of course, you could look at the civilizations of Atlantis, but they were probably a civilizations that suffered from hubris. They became over-scientifically qualified. And in our case, would you resonate with the idea that we're now there as well, that we are suffering from so much hubris combined with predatory greed, that now we are going to have to shift into a completely different consciousness way of being? It's going to happen whether we whether we think we have to or not. And yes, I agree. There is a state of consciousness, no matter what dimensional being that you are, and we're talking about the, the three-dimensional human being, not the spiritual being that lies within us, but the three-dimensional human being, that at sometimes it's like in the Bible, the Tower of Babel, or Tower of Baal or Babel. We all want to become God. Our scientists and our medical paradigms we all become, we think that there is a point we have reached evolutionary consciousness to understand things, that we are godlike, and we take on that, that premise. CERN being built in Switzerland, they're going to create the Big Bang Theory. They're going to reproduce by bombarding electrons that they believe that they're going to recreate the Big Bang Theory, which is the basic concept of how the world began or creation and when you start to design a protocol based on that that means you're doing the same thing as in the bible the tower of Baal. and what happens is you think you've become a god i have no question that the dynamics that are occurring in this next four years will completely alter and redefine every law like what physics has done to Newtonian mechanics and what quantum physics has done to physics. It is absolutely, unequivocally impossible to believe that there's any solid matter in the universe. It is provable that there is no such thing as solid matter. Now, that reality it begins to be the driving force, although people don't accept it yet because it has not come to their very viewpoint. But it is occurring. In a recent conversation with Dranvelo Makisadek, he talked about the reality that we reside in as simply being a hologram that is simply being projected on us uh, from the center of the universe. Would you see that as having premise, that idea? I would have to know more about the construct of that idea. I don't see that anything is projecting anything. We are creating it ourselves. Each individually within a concept are creating the reality. It's like five people viewing a, a traffic accident. You will get five completely different viewpoints of it. And I like Drumbelow's work. Some of it I think is a little rangy. But I'd have to hear more of the structural dynamic of it before I would uh, conclude that. But I know this, there is nothing that is real in the sense of the physical mechanics. 
And what we have in physical mechanics, we have created an operational perspective of it because that's all there is. And that's what's all been able to create this mindset of fear. But I've been to a place, David, that makes all of this nonsense. I've been to the place that comes after this. And I've made that journey more than one time. So as I look at it, I am thoroughly prepared for, quote, unquote, the end of time. I believe this from 1975 to now, and I have made necessary for whatever I think is going to occur, and I think that it will be uh, earthquakes and solar flares and mostly triggered by solar flares. But this is upon us, and people being prepared and ready and smart and let go of everything you've ever believed and open up your heart and your your processes to who you really are as a great, powerful, and mighty spiritual being with dignity, direction, and purpose. Redefine our dignity and reset our direction and our purpose because the change is going to come. Would you define that change as an epoch, just as possibly we traveled into an epoch from the feudal system to a very quantum-orientated world? Absolutely. It will be even more than that because it will move into dynamic consciousness. It will move into multidimensional realities. We've always locked ourselves into single physical mental paradigms. We're about to move into quasar spiritual paradigms and that we're not alone, that there are other evolving consciousnesses and there are other beings that exist within the same work as the same framework as we're in. That's the revolution. Did you see the Wikipedia files that was the guy was getting ready to release? That guy was getting ready to release about a war that's been being fought in Antarctica. I didn't see that. No, it was someone said it, and first I thought it was kind of funny. But I was looking on YouTube about it, and there's like a hundred things about it. And this is why they tried to stop him. Well, hasn't this been what the world has been around as for thousands of years, particularly since the turn of the century, suppression? Uh, Whether it's new scientists or quantum scientists or anybody trying to affect change, the suppression has been enormous, and today it's probably greater than it's ever been. Well, but it's over. I mean, that, they cannot suppress it. Worldwide understanding and worldwide support is here. There is no way that that's not going to come to be true. And when that happens, when it happens, the whole world and how we look at it will internally change within each person. And what I believe, David, will happen is the spiritual consciousness of the human being will demand reckoning. It will demand the fact that we have been being deceived by religions and institutions and governments to make a plantational society, to control us, to make us drone bees. I mean, I don't have any doubt about that. And the very moment that that happens, the world will change. And the the rebellion that will occur based on that because there shall never be a rationale for hiding that from us since the 40s, since the so-called Roswell event. And you cannot tell millions of people who are seeing these spacecraft and all the Internet stuff, the stuff that's on YouTube about it, 
no idiot in their right mind can believe the possibility that it's not true. I think it's exciting. I was about to say, I believe that we are living in an amazing time and that we have a responsibility to help it and guide it and become truly part of that love that the universe offers us. It's almost as much fun as being on the radio with you, David. <laughs> Daniel and I haven't even started yet. It's been wonderful talking to you today in this first program, and I look forward to joining you again in our second program tomorrow. And I'd like this too, David. I would like to thank you for being who you are and your style of approach. And I would like to tell your listeners that I love them with all my heart and that I hope that the conversation between you and I over these next couple of days really empowers them to see the true beauty within them and the great might as spiritual beings and to act upon that and let that be the, the reason why and the intention for why we have come together to see our spiritual selves and to make the right decisions at the right time. So as this event occurs over the next couple of years, we are the power and we are not controlled. Well, I feel blessed today to be part of that. Daniel Brinkley, thank you. And to our listeners today, I do hope that you've enjoyed this first program with Daniel Brinkley. If you need any information on this or any other program in the series, you can visit davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Music